This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome back. I'm Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm pleased to welcome to the show my next guest, George Yip, Professor of Marketing and Strategy and Associate Dean for Executive MBA at the Imperial College Business School in the United Kingdom. George is one of the world's leading authorities on global strategy, marketing, and managing global customers. He's also the author of a book, China's Next Strategic Advantage from Imitation to Innovation. He has been uh, the Director of Research and Innovation at Capgemini Consulting and a Senior Manager at Pricewaterhouse. He also has a PhD in business from the Harvard Business School and is a well-known academic working on marketing strategy and now on innovation. So, George, welcome to the show. Yes, hello, Harbia. Thank you for having me on it. So this is such a wonderful book I and such an exciting topic. So tell us about China's journey from just, just the brief, you know, the key points about how China actually has China, or companies in China have gone from imitation to innovation. It's it's a bold statement. So tell us more about That's it. Right. Well, as you know, China started to embrace a, a market economy um, 40 years ago. And it was really starting from zero after the Maoist period in 1978. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, of course, all that China had was low-cost production. But, you know, very rapidly, China built up its capabilities in manufacturing, particularly engineering-related, and then its population was getting better and better educated, including, you know, sending many ethnic Chinese to American universities, Mm -hmm. such as the University of Pennsylvania. And many of these um, highly educated Chinese have gone back to China. So they're part of this innovation ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, And China's approaching innovation in some ways, analogous to how it went into manufacturing, so a bit different from the Western way, which is that China's using large numbers of low-cost engineers doing things you know, um, in large numbers in a very quick way. So at the moment, China's not doing rocket science innovation, but it is very much into commercializing innovation. Mm-hmm. One way to think about it is that the West, particularly the USA, is good at going from zero to one, and China's very good at going from one to 100. So... China is really implementing a lot so of... So the scaling up area. Scaling up, as well as coming up with innovations I of see. its own, which tend to be in sort of engineered products mm-hmm. um, rather than pure science products. So, uh, for example, you talk about, you refer to some of the big success um, successes among corporations, Alibaba, Xiaomi, Tencent, Huawei, Lenovo. So, So tell us a bit about... You know, I think Huawei is the most interesting to me because they're in tech networking. You know, uh, it's sort of uh, industrial B2B products. Of course, they're in many other things. And uh, one can argue that that is kind of going higher up in the value chain. Um, you know, and so, and they have been very, very successful. Yes, and, and this is only the, this is still early, right? So yes, tell us more days. about this. Early days of Huawei. So, you know, Huawei is in... Uh, telecommunications equipment, networks, routers, and mm-hmm. other equipment like that. And Cisco and, would be a competitor, for example, just to give people a sense of... Um, yeah. Ericsson, for example. Mm-hmm. 
Sweden's Ericsson. Um, and the way Huawei started to innovate is that it's always been, typically Chinese, it's been very, very close to customers. So mm-hmm. its um, early innovations were not that scientific, but they were practical innovations such as they had to put in a system in um, Amsterdam in the Netherlands, which is a very crowded city. Mm-hmm. So they, they innovated their system so that they broke it up and had the bulky units, you know, either in the basement or on the roof, and the control systems in the offices. So that was very much applications-oriented. But since then, they've invested more and more in science-based innovation, and now they're really investing, say, in uh, 5G. But they certainly pioneered uh, something called the single RAN, which combined 2G, 3G, and 4G working Mm -hmm. together. So again, that was a customer-oriented innovation that used a lot of engineering. Mm -hmm. And and Alibaba's story is vastly different, right? This is kind of an e-commerce. Uh, of course, now it's in many businesses again, highly diversified. But you know what was? I, I actually studied Alibaba a bit because I had uh, co-authored a book on uh, Chinese business leaders, and um, and in that was a great book. I read it. Well, thank you, thank you very much, and I certainly compliment you on on your book, which is I think really making a, some powerful points on innovation. Um, and if we look at Alibaba, what we see is sort of um, copying some of the initial technological uh, platforms, but then really uh, innovating on the customer interface, as you said, right? That Jack Ma yeah. was insistent that the customer interface should include negotiation in some way. Uh, and eBay, which was actually doing well in China and actually had followed, the, the Chinese partner had followed eBay's strategy in China, lost to Alibaba because they did not adapt, you know, did not put that design principle front and center. And there's a lot more to it, but it speaks to your point about, you know, market-led innovation in some way. Yes. So customer-led innovation. And the other interesting thing about China is it has more customers than any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. So the Internet is very much based on large numbers. So to innovate in the Internet space, you have to experiment. Mm-hmm. And Alibaba and other Internet companies in China, they can experiment with tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of users. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that unlike engineered products, which China has been able to export around the world, Alibaba's products are not yet, uh, services are not yet being exported. Right. So that may happen because um, Alibaba is trying to lead the world in terms of mobile payments. So China is leading the world in mobile payments. Mm-hmm way ahead, actually, and it's also leading the world in internet shopping. So Chinese consumers are very internet and mobile oriented. So this becomes a source of advantage for Chinese companies. And in fact, isn't it the case, uh, I think some of my colleagues work in the area of uh, uh, online retail and other, other such domains, and China is in fact the world's leader in customer data, yes. right? Which, yes. which, which is exactly what you're saying. And then that actually generates innovation on business models. And I think you're making the fascinating point about running more experiments and getting answers perhaps in a shorter time. Yes, and they do this not just on the Internet. I was talking to actually um, a a Western pharmaceutical company that's running R&D in China. And what they told me was that, you know, in the West, when they're considering three possible experiments, they might run one of them. In China, they just run all three experiments, Mm -hmm. again, using large numbers and speed. I see. So, so uh, 
what are some of the challenges? I think one challenge I can think of is, you know, the the uh, U.S. system is a magnet for talent, people coming from everywhere uh, and, you know, going to universities and then many staying on. Of course, there's some debates on that today. Um, China is taking advantage of its um, of its large population, uh, but the uh, diversity of perspective. Can we speak a bit about that? Yes. Well, as I said at the beginning, uh, China's del- uh, benefiting from bringing back ethnic Chinese mm-hmm. who have studied science and engineering in the best Western universities. And mm-hmm. in fact, China has an official program to bring them back. It gives them tax incentives and other honors. Or I can give you a specific example. Um, I visited a company called Royal, R-O-Y-O-L-E, mm-hmm. in Shenzhen, in South China, started by a Stanford uh, PhD called uh, Bill Liu, L-I-U. Mm-hmm. And he makes flexible displays. He's just come out with a totally flexible mobile phone that you can wear around your wrist. Mm-hmm. He's also designing uh, very thin, flexible displays eventually replace the dashboard of cars. Mm-hmm. And instead of starting his company in California, he studied a PhD at Stanford, he decided to go back to China because that's where the market is and that's also where he can get large numbers of scientists and engineers. Mm-hmm. So um, these foreign educated ethnic Chinese are bringing the creativity back to China, while admittedly the large numbers of uh, Chinese trained engineers and PhDs are not of the Western standard. So we, we have these um, almost you know, geniuses coming back to manage large pyramids of Chinese-trained engineers and scientists. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing, are there any forces that might um, be challenges, or is it kind of a, a ramp going straight you know, at a very high angle to greater and greater innovation? Um, well, I, I think the current trade war might, real, might be a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, because China's de- Chinese government's declared policy um, made in China 2025 depends very much on moving up the value chain mm-hmm. and innovating and manufacturing uh, more and more technically um, advanced products. But they're going to have to sell that. And another part of their strategy is to acquire foreign companies for their technology. Mm-hmm. And the West has only just woken up to that. And now there's starting to be some resistance. Because, you know, the ideology, particularly in the USA and in the UK, is we don't care who buys our companies. We believe in a free market. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> now there's sudden awareness that perhaps um, Western economies don't want China to buy their best technologies, such as a Chinese company did buying a German robotics company, mm-hmm. KUKA, a couple of years ago, which really scared the German government. Mm-hmm. After all, robotics and uh, Industry uh, 4.0 is... Know, one of the key planks of German manufacturing advantage. Mm-hmm. And can you can you talk us through, um, you know, Geely buying Volvo, which yeah, um, that's, I that's also actually fun. followed. I also followed that. So I'd love to hear, uh, you know, your point. You're, you're mm-hmm. making an extremely important point. I, I agree, and that is that particularly if the acquiring company has a state ownership, then there's a you know there's an angle that the target can use which is that the state is going to own part of this corporation overseas. Well, um, Geely, of course, is private. Geely was private, right? Yes. In fact, that's not an accident. At that time, um, foreign American companies were just waking up and were sensitive to Chinese acquisitions. 
uh, the Chinese had just lost out on acquiring uh, an American oil company. So when the Volvo opportunity came up, the Chinese government decided that only Geely, a private company, mm-hmm. would bid for it. They did not allow the state-owned Chinese companies to bid for it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why Geely won, because it was private. Yeah, so, I think it was Sinok, right? China National Oil Company that um, right. got into um, hot water when they tried to bid for Union 76, I think it was. Yes. And and so, I think... You know, Geely, um, Bought Volvo for a real bargain, but they also invested ten, you know, maybe twenty billion into it. Mm-hmm. As we saw in their recent attempt to go public with Volvo again, they've more than made their money back. I think you know it's been valued at about fifty billion, although they pulled back um, on it. So, how they succeeded with Volvo? They, they did leave the management very much alone. Yes, but they've invested in Volvo. They've been willing to make investments, and over time, they'll learn about the technology. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting things I found, because I, I've done a bit of research on this and interviewed um, some Geely executives, mm-hmm. one of the things they learned from Volvo was not just technology, they learned design as well, because mm-hmm. they said, you know, Geely had many different models, but none of them looked the same, whereas, you know, a Western company, BMW, Mercedes, Volvo, you could recognize them even from the taillights. Right. They have an integrated design. And so Geely learned this. Actually, I think that visual design is the last frontier for Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. They're starting to learn technical design, but um, now they're going to start to learn visual design as well. And and I think so. Do you think Geely has a, created a playbook then? Because uh, I agree. I I, I also in, uh, it so happened it was a case study in one of in our book on leadership, and it was certainly a complex transaction, right? Because yeah. Volvo had mm-hmm. a lot of history. It was you know it had is this uh, loyal following and. It's entirely possible that a Chinese manufacturer might actually, you know, there may be dilution of yeah. uh, of the brand, right? Um, and so take us through a little bit on a managerial innovation that perhaps they did to actually get them to, um, you know, successfully integrate this acquisition. Well, I have to say they haven't integrated it that much. I, I mean, fact, what I mean is manage it. In, You're right. The, the actual, they hired they, in another Westerner to manage Volvo. The test is about to come because um, Geely has invested in a manufacturing plant for Volvo in China. It's only just opened up. They've started making cars. And the test will be whether or not they can sell these luxury cars owned by the Chinese mm-hmm. outside China. Now, we have seen this already with um, Jaguar and uh, I think it's Tata. The Tata, Indian yes. Company yes. So, and nobody cares that Jaguar is owned by an Indian company. It hasn't hurt the Jaguar brand. Yes. So I don't see that um, Volvo being owned by a Chinese company will be particularly hurt either. So long as they make it clear it's a separate mm-hmm. a separate brand. That's right. And I think we'll we'll come back to that. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh, and my guest is George Yip, Professor of Marketing and Strategy and Associate Dean for Executive MBA at Imperial College Business School and the author of China's of the book, China's Next Strategic Advantage from Imitation to Innovation. If you have any comments or questions, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, so George, I think this is really wonderful, and... Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of cons- you know there are a lot of stereotypes about any given country, and I suppose the stereotype with uh, Chinese companies 
would be that intellectual property can leak and you have no recourse. And so, uh, you know, that's why China has progressed, but they really don't know how to innovate. They know how to absorb. And you've given some of the reasons how they can innovate. I think in your in your book, you had this very nice diagram about culture and um, customer capabilities, all driving innovation. Um, can you? So this, I think, what you're talking about is a systemic approach, and uh, I'd love right, to hear yeah. more about so we, that. We have four drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, the nature of the customers themselves who are becoming more and more demanding and more and more sophisticated. The culture, which includes actually the government drive for innovation, so the government is really mm-hmm. supporting this and the inherently entrepreneurial Chinese culture, which was kind of suppressed in the uh, Maoist period. Mm -hmm. Firm capabilities, which have increased initially by being suppliers to Western companies. They learned from Western companies. And they steadily invested more and more in R&D. And today, they're setting up R&D facilities in the rest of the world. So like Mm -hmm. Huawei has a microwave research facility in Italy. Mm-hmm. And many of them have research facilities in California. And the mm-hmm. fourth driver is cash. The Chinese companies have the cash to buy foreign companies. They're sitting on a lot like of cash. Volvo, That's right. Like Kuka, and the cash to set up foreign R&D centers mm-hmm. and to uh, bring scientists back home. So it's really creating a diverse ecosystem, including access to ecosystems overseas, yep. both not just in terms of human capital coming mm-hmm. in, but also in terms of building facilities in the in those places, um, so you know. At the same time, the in the Alibaba story, one of the interesting things was that they were actually not successful when they built an innovation center near San Francisco, and or it was not as they made it successful, but it was not as innovative as they expected. Now that may be a question of time and place. Uh, do you want to comment on that? I mean, is it is it that some yes, companies? I, um, I I hadn't looked at that, but my my immediate reaction to that is that the internet business in China is so different from the mm-hmm. internet business in, in the USA that they probably wouldn't have got much from that. From mm-hmm. that. Unlike, say, in engineering-based products, where there'd be a much closer link. So I think it'll take a while yes. for Chinese internet businesses to really figure out how to crack Western markets. So that leads me to another question, actually, which I, that I was thinking about, that which are the industries where... Uh, as or types of industries where this innovativeness is most visible, and I, I I have a similar sense to you that when it comes to you know consumer software or consumer applications, things like that, um, there are differences in consume consumers, and also the life cycles are different. Whereas B two B products or long life cycle technologies, one could imagine there'll be there'll be a more lasting advantage. Um, I would say in the sector, we're seeing it in the sectors I'd call mid-level technology. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, not, it's not space rockets, at least not yet, mm-hmm. but um, mid-level technology that uses a lot of engineering, that um, also is labor-intensive. Uh, the one I think where we'll see the next surge of innovations is in um, aerial drones. They're the perfect mm-hmm. product for innovation in China because... China now manufactures most of the world's aerial drones. Mm-hmm. But what does innovation in those mean? These, you know, these, are, these products are um, metal, plastic, and electronics. And innovation of an aerial drone means 
you know, adding some extra rotors, making it bigger, making it smaller, adding more carrying capacity is the kind of innovation that happens better next door to the factory. Mm-hmm. So China will have that advantage. In contrast, say, to the mobile phone, where Apple can design it in California and manufacture it in China. So I think it's in these sort of complex um, engineering-intensive, manufacturing-intensive, where the Chinese will really start to move away in terms of incremental innovation. Mm-hmm. And start adding science to it as well. Very interesting. Uh, so I think that that kind of suggests particular uh, types of industries or types of firms where perhaps this, this is a sweet spot. Um, so just to talk about something else, you uh, you talk, there are over a hundred science and technology parks in China, and uh, can you comment on their kind of the the variation in success within them? And uh, I think in the earlier segment you may have heard. Uh, the you know we had I had spoken with the one of the people in charge of uh, increasing innovation in Philadelphia through fostering ecosystems. Um, yeah. Can you you know all ecosystems are not the same, so you can do the real estate, but after that, how do we go about it? Yeah, um, the science and technology parks are an, are an important part of um, China's innovation ecosystem. Um, they play somewhat different roles, particularly if you look at in Beijing area, Shanghai area, and the Shenzhen area. So mm-hmm. in the Beijing area, you probably get more fundamental science mm-hmm. because of the universities up there. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, the Shanghai area, more oriented toward bigger companies, bigger applications. And in Shenzhen, which is you know the home of the uh, entrepreneurialism of China, it, that that is you know, quite a hotbed mm-hmm. of smaller innovations. So, you know, we visited, for example, uh, companies that make, uh, you know, smaller companies that make things like uh, nano products, um, world-class nano products, um, or companies that made security films, again, world-class. So there are actually plenty of very small Chinese companies under the radar. And in fact, that's the subject of my next book coming out in April, Mm -hmm. which is focusing on the emerging innovators in China. So this book has focused on the bigger companies. So the next generation of innovators. Yes, Very the next generation of um, I- innovators. So well, that's that's really fascinating. And in fact, I, I agree. I think Shenzhen has been is absolutely astonishing. Um, you know, I've been there every few months, uh, uh, and I have found dramatic change within within even within a twelve month period. And also the, the the new big projects connecting the different you know Hong Kong and other. Places in that region it gives even more mobility, right? The new bridge. Uh, so, uh, lots of fascinating uh, opportunities there. Um, one of the things I was wondering about was in our book, and this speaks to the point you just made, that we found that many of the people we were interviewing, there was like a there was sort of a big boss concept in the company, you know, as, as compared to a U.S. company in the similar domain. And and what I mean by that is. That was just a metaphor we used, but the idea was that you didn't quite have the free-ranging, you know, debate that you might see, and one can argue even in large companies in the U.S. you don't see as much of that. So uh, the next generation, however, are entrepreneurs, not unlike entrepreneurs in any part of the world. So you want to comment on this distinction, larger corporation, uh, smaller corporation? Uh, well, first, on, on your point about the boss, Chinese culture is very boss-oriented. Mm-hmm. But yes. the effect is that Chinese companies move very quickly because they're mm-hmm. not tied up by process. So the agility, companies yes. Are about yes. 
about 70% process, 30% boss, and in China, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. So they, one of my colleagues calls this the huddle and act. So the team huddles around the boss. The boss makes a quick decision. Mm-hmm. And because the markets grow so fast in China, they're happy to take more risk, move faster um, around the boss. Mm-hmm. So we see that, I think, you know, from the startup entrepreneurial companies up to the bigger companies. Mm-hmm. I think the big difference, actually, isn't so much between the size of private companies, but it's between the private companies and the state-owned companies. Yes. The state-owned companies definitely move much more slowly. Mm-hmm. And this is a significant challenge for the Chinese government of what to do about the state-owned co- uh, companies. So as you look at... Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about risk-taking. You actually mentioned that in several different places. Uh, and I think that's... Uh, I I think you make the point that they can... You already did in, in this show as well, the the issue of making having more trials... Tell me how they deal with failure, because, of course, you're going to fail in some of those ventures. Well, the Chinese approach is very much fail fast. Mm -hmm. And, again, that's made possible because they're in a fast-growing market. So um, they they will throw out beta versions. They don't mind failing. And also because Chinese customers are still fairly new, like first-generation consumers, etc., they're much more forgiving. So they'll forgive mistakes. Mm-hmm. And companies uh, move on. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a little bit. Uh, I mean, you may have the big, big boss concept, uh, but then, but then there's agility and there's opportunity, and so that becomes um, uh, an offsetting feature. <clears throat> yes, Chinese management is definitely more agile than Western management. Uh, mm-hmm. this, this is this is now their big advantage. I mean, they don't have the sophisticated processes of Western companies, mm-hmm. but they're more agile more risk-taking. And, yeah, another example is I I heard um, from the head of um, General Electric uh, Appliances, which was bought by a Chinese company. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese company has told them to take more risks. Uh, And, in fact, um, what the American CEO said was that the Chinese company said to him, if you have a good idea, build the factory, and we'll fill the factory and sell the output. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the old days under General Electric, they would have you know, analyzed each new idea for months uh, before deciding whether or not to invest in it. So as a summary statement, I mean, what would you say about, you know, uh, the main messages, uh, you know, that we have maybe about, um, about a minute or so. Just what would you say as the main messages? Um, well, I think the main message for Western companies is that they should be aware that Chinese companies are innovating and they should think about setting up innovation centers in China themselves to innovate not just for the Chinese market, but for the rest of the world also. Fascinating. Well, George, there's so much more to talk about, but I think I would encourage our uh, listeners to get the book, China's Next Strategic Advantage from Imitation to Innovation. How can our listeners keep up with you? If they go on, if they go on Facebook, I have a number of videos on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the book itself is a great way to, to understand your, what you're talking about. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Until next time, I'm Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.